Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, we're talking with Scott and his daughter, Laura Berenger, who is also the co-author of their recent book, A Church Called Tove. And today we're doing something a little bit different. We're going to do a question and answer session with Scott and Laura, um, because as they've been publicizing this book, they've had a lot of questions and a lot of feedback from people with questions about spiritual abuse. And we thought we would just take some time to look at some of these questions. We actually asked on Twitter and Facebook for some of you to submit your questions, and we got a lot of them. So we're going to start uh, mm-hmm. checking them out and seeing how many we get to. Um, but we we want to just spend some time looking at these questions and answering them the best we can. So Scott, I will start with you. and. We wanted to start with asking how you would define spiritual abuse. What is it? How do you know when it's happening? Um, what does it look like? Yes, very good, Laura and Laura. And uh, we want to thank all the um, readers and listeners, of people who contributed questions. It was a little overwhelming. And uh, Laura Taro asked me, you know, which ones do you want to get through? I said, I said, this is going to take a while. We're not going to get through. We're going to get a lot of them, uh, a lot of questions here, but we'll, we'll try to answer some of them. But what is, what is spiritual abuse? Let's think of physical abuse as the violation of physical space and integrity. Sexual abuse is the violation of a person's sexual relations, sexual body. Spiritual abuse is the violation of a person's spiritual space. And there is an exceptional book about this by Lisa Oakley and Justin Humphreys. Lisa did her dissertation on this topic in England, and they have become experts in the the United Kingdom about this topic. And uh, I hear from other people how just how informed and helpful they are in their understanding. So I I have learned to rely upon their definitions and their articulations. So let me just use this because it, it really helps. I was telling Laura Terrell before, it really helps us when we answer certain questions if we know what we're talking about as spiritual abuse rather than just throw it open and everything I don't like about somebody is spiritual abuse. But uh, they define it as a form of emotional and psychological abuse, and it is characterized by a systematic pattern of coercive and controlling behavior in a religious context. So a church, a seminary, um, a spiritual center, some spiritual relationship, a pastoral relationship, a home Bible study, Hmm. where there is a systematic pattern of coercive and controlling behavior. Now, for instance, if I, if I, if you ask me a question and I interrupt you, or I shut you down, 
You might feel a bit wounded by that, but it might be necessary in the context. But if I do this every time someone asks a question I'm uncomfortable about, if I raise my voice to let you know that if you go any further on this, I'm going to get madder, then I start to act in a spiritually abusive, or at least as an educator, as a as an educational abusive way. So this is a religious context. So a spiritual world of pastoral relationships, church, etc., in an area where we are treating one another as siblings in Christ. And uh, it can have a deeply damaging impact on those who experience it. And um, I've been around people like this, and we're hearing from people like this. This is important because they begin to break it down into some um, particulars that indicate, not always, but indicate, can be indicators of, of systematic spiritual abuse, manipulation and exploitation, enforced accountability, censorship of decision-making, requirements for secrecy and silence, coercion to conform, and an inability to ask questions, control through the use of sacred texts or teaching. You know, people will say the Bible says this, Mm. and you're thinking, I'm not so sure the Bible does, but there are authorities. A requirement of obedience to the abuser. Ooh, that's getting powerful. The suggestion that the abuser has a divine position. I'm your pastor. Isolation as a means of punishment. You can't come to the small group this week. And superiority and elitism. So these these are the, this is a definition, and I want to repeat it. It's characterized by a systematic pattern of coercive and controlling behavior in a religious context. So that that's uh, that's how they they um, they define it, and I that's what I'm operating with in this definition. Now, how do you know what it's happening? Well, human beings are discerning agents. We experience things, and we try to make sense of them. And sometimes we have this subtle feeling that we are being coerced or controlled mm. or manipulated. Um, that we are being asked to do something we don't want. Let's just say this. We feel that our spiritual space is being violated by what, what is happening. I think that is the indicator. It's a discerning moment. It's rarely obvious where someone says, now I'm going to spiritually abuse you. They don't do that. It happens and you go, oh, I'm not so sure I like that. And yet, isn't it often the case, and both Laura, both Laura's, this has been confusing for me. I'll talk about Laura, and someone will say, I didn't know your daughter did that. I said, no, I'm talking about Laura Taro. Uh, <laughs> and um, um, I, I just think that we, we experience this, and we realize that it took two days for us to realize what actually occurred in that, in that interaction. So I don't think that even knowing this definition and being alert to the presence or the reality of spiritual abuse 
is immediately or automatically going to give us discernment to know it happened just like that. So if you don't recognize it immediately, that's okay. Over time, you may discern that you were being coerced and controlled. I don't know if the Lauras have anything to add to this. Well, I was just going to say that I'm thinking as you're speaking that it could be something large scale or something small scale with an individual or large scale at the congregational level. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I mean, a whole church, I mean, uh, Laura Terrell and I were talking about a whole church can become almost spiritually abusive where as Mm -hmm. a group, they begin to control other people. Um, and sometimes it's just one-on-one. Sometimes it's the pastor. Sometimes it's an associate pastor. It's the musicians uh, that they begin to manipulate one another. Sometimes it's a small group Bible study leader. Um, and, and so, yeah, but uh, it, can, it can move from an individual all the way to an entire church where the culture has become spiritually abusive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's it, there's sort of a cumulative effect where you start to notice this is a pattern. It's it's something that's happening over and over again, and it starts to corrupt the culture. I think that's something you both talk about in your book. You know, this culture that becomes corrupted, and um, you you see its impact on other people, and so it kind of cascades down and now everybody's sort of treating each other in this way, or it creates this culture of fear where everyone's sort of afraid to talk about their experience. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Lisa Oakley and and Justin Humphreys say um, that uh, spiritual abuse leads to um, questions in people's hearts, minds, souls. Who can I trust? Who am I? When people are beginning to probe into your life that you begin to ask yourself, you know, uh, I was talking with a student recently who said uh, she was in a classroom where a conversation came up and she thought she disagreed with everybody. And she said, what's wrong with me that I, I would think something was wrong and other people did what's going on here. Uh, How do I cope with fear? What do I believe? How long does this impact last? Who is here to support me? These are the sorts of questions that I think they are they are very helpful for helping us discern whether spiritual abuse is present. But again, it's characterized by a systematic pattern of coercive and controlling behavior in a religious context. That's good. Well, I wanted to get to some uh, some more questions from people, and this cat I kind of tried to categorize them. So the first category are questions related to abusive leaders and leadership cultures. And so, Laura, I'm going to ask you this one, Laura Beringer. One of our listeners said, "I see a trend toward authoritarianism in the church, both at the denominational level and in individual pastors' attitudes." This leads to sort of a follow me without complaint or opinion. And I find this disturbing as people are not allowed or encouraged to think for themselves. Could you address this? Yes. Well, first of all, thank you for having us and including me tonight. It's really good to be with you guys. Um, 
I find this really disturbing as well, along with the reader who's asking this question. Um, this person asks about references and authoritarianism. I right away, my mind leapt to loyalty because a lot of the descriptors about follow me without complaint, follow me, you shouldn't have an opinion, you should not question the leader. Those also um, trigger red flags for me because they're, like I said, they're reminiscent of a loyalty culture and perhaps perhaps the um, characteristics overlap a bit. Um, it reminded me so much of the story that just broke recently about Dave Ramsey. And there was a particular staff meeting where he was talking about um, we're loyal to each other. That's the most important characteristic of people who work here. And again, it overlaps for me with authoritarian culture. Um, we saw this too when we were researching Willow Creek. We taught, we saw that, um, we heard a story of um, an elder who told us that she disagreed with Bill Hybels in a um, elder meeting and he, she didn't vote the way that he wanted her to vote. And he iced her out in her words, iced her out, did not speak or look, look at her for six months. Um, so again, I find it disturbing as well. And I think it's a huge red flag of a, of a toxic situation. You know, the, uh, this whole thing with authoritarianism, uh, there's been a little bit of a movement. And uh, among certain types of church leaders, um, certain types of groups of church leaders, um, unfortunately, I've, I've seen it more among certain people connected to the Gospel Coalition uh, and the Southern Baptist Church than I've seen it in other places. But I know it happens other places because I've seen it in the Anglican Church that I'm a part of, not in my local church at all, but in groups of this. And, and this is, there's a, there's a little bit of a movement right now going on that we want to respect pastor's authority. And okay, we go back and forth with this sort of idea that, that pastors, pastors should be respected because of their position. All right. And I think that they have a powerful spiritual task and calling. I, I respect that. Um, it can bleed into authoritarianism, and some people want control, and so they appeal to their pastoral authority, and other people um, want their pastors to have this authority, and then all of a sudden there's a culture of authoritarianism. But I, I've seen a little bit of a movement toward um, some people wanting to emphasize pastoral authority. Uh, Laura's. This is this is what I often say. <laughs> Pastors who want to talk about pastoral authority are the ones who shouldn't have it. Mm -hmm. uh, if you are a person with giftedness, people will listen to you because of your wisdom, because of your charisma, and I mean by that your gift, um, not because you have authority. So if the person is wanting authority, they're grasping for a term that in the New Testament is only to be 
justified with God and Jesus. The, The pastors, leaders in churches are never said to have exousia, authority. So now, uh, and Laura uh, Berenger was bringing this up. Um, she brought up, I think you you brought up the word divisive. Divide, uh, often uh, leaders and loyalty use the word divisive. That person's divisive. What that means is it's coercive verbs and words used to get people to conform. So if someone says you're divisive, you know, you're going to say, well, I don't want to be divisive. And I think at that point you say, you know, I wasn't being divisive. I was asking a question that I think was an honest question. When you're accused of being divisive, often enough it happens that it's nothing other than abusive, uh, coercive behavior seeking to get you to conform that it is actually divisive. So ask yourself, am I trying to be divisive? If you're not, say, I don't want to be divisive. I hope I'm not divisive. So let me ask this question in another way. So something like that. Dad, I was going to tell you that happened to me um, after I had been speaking out publicly about Willow Creek and how I believed that they hadn't been honest about what happened with the women. I I happened to be at a service at Willow Creek and I had somebody turn to me and Tell me, I she she looked at me and said, "You are so divisive," and I found that I remember at the time I was struck by it, and I thought, "Am I divisive, or are you not willing to see the truth about the situation?" Yeah, Laura, and I think that that, um, Laura Berenger, when you ask that question, "Am I being divisive?" That's the proper response. You want to back off and say, am I, am I being divisive? Or are they, are they trying to get me to conform? You know, are they, are they worried about whether, whether something that happened in the, in this case about Willow Creek, whether these stories by the women were true and honest and therefore revealing a corrupted culture that sometimes is a fear that leads people to accuse everyone who critiques something as being divisive. Look, the prophets of the Old Testament who critiqued the nation were always accused of this sort of thing. You know, conform, conform, be loyal. No, sometimes loyalty to the truth means that we have to speak up and speak out about something that's happening in the context. That's really good. It makes me think too of the role of the Holy Spirit in the process of discernment. When you're talking about a community of people, um, I, I think we have a responsibility to do discernment together and to rely on the leading of the Holy Spirit. And that involves asking hard questions. That's mm-hmm. part of the process. And to shut that process down and to um, kind of jump to authority we're, we're missing key aspects of that process. And, and we're assuming an authority that isn't ours to have. Yeah. We're eliminating God from the conversation, which is just really dangerous. Yep. Good, oh, good, good. All right, Laura Berenger, another one from you. Uh, this, this question came from Facebook and they said, what are some early red flags that a church is mu- moving in an abusive direction or that some leaders have abusive tendencies? Basically, 
how can parishioners get out before they become victims? I've been thinking about this one, and I think that there can be a lot of a lot of red flags. One that came to mind for me instantaneously was, is there an inner circle? Is there an inner circle that's almost impenetrable? Did I spell that? Did I say that word correctly? It's hard. Mm-hmm. Are <laughs> <laughs> um, in other words, are the leaders? Is the leader and the people around him or her are they treated as more important than other congregants? Mm-hmm. And I don't personally believe there should be an inner circle, so that's a red flag for me. Um, can you get? Can you get in it? And if not, or are you are you striving to be in it? Maybe that's a red flag in your own spirit that you should check. Um, Another one that comes to mind, I talked about a little bit earlier, um, are there demands for loyalty to be loyal to the leader, to be loyal to the institution over doing what's right? All right. Now this is, this is a really interesting point uh, that you bring up, Laura. Um, Here's an, here's an experience that I would say. If you are at a, let's say you're at a church. Look, look people who work with the pastor and the um, in, and people who work with, let's say, the Bible study leaders in your church, that can be perceived as a circle, right? That's uh, it, normal because they're the ones talking about it. They're the ones meeting about it. They're the ones discussing it and making some of the decisions. Right, but there is a sense in which in some churches you feel like there is an inner circle and you've got to be somebody special to get in and you've got to know somebody on the inside and get to know them. And if you find yourself wanting to please that person or those persons in a special way and find yourself thinking, oh, I don't want to get them mad at me. You've already sort of admitted there's something going on here that's unhealthy. And I would also add, are you wanting to be in the inner circle? Are you wanting, do you feel important when you get closer to the leader? That's another check that something is off. But just that perception that there's there's a healthy and normal, let's say, inner circle about places. For instance, I teach at Northern Seminary. There are only a certain number of faculty members, all right? David Fitch and I and Bob Price and Nijay Gupta and Lynn Kohick and Bill Scheel and Beth Felker-Jones and, you know, I mean, these, these and, and, you know, we, we've got a few others. And then, okay, so we have this, we're the only ones who are faculty members. All right. The students aren't faculty members. The students have a circle. These are normal things. But there is a sense, there is a sense in some groups that there is a group of people in the know that no one else is in the know with. And they have private information and power and they make decisions. And I want to be a part of it or I'm afraid of it. That's what we're talking about. That, that I think that's Uh, Those are really good indicators that spiritual abuse is going to be occurring. So, yeah, that's good. 
All right, Scott, this is a big one. We had several questions in this category, but um, it's, it's about accountability. So here's one from Twitter. How do we hold leaders and churches accountable for their abuse and help them understand that spiritual abuse is alive and well within their congregation? Okay. Um, I'm a little nervous about the word accountability because I think this becomes the language actually of spiritual abuse. Mm-hmm. It becomes, a, all right, but there's a healthy sense of accountability too. There's uh, so uh, the way I have heard the word accountability, it almost is always enforced in accountability rather than the kind that comes from genuine freedom and responsibility to one another. So, okay. All right. I think, first of all, we have to ask, do we have a culture in which we can talk to the spiritual leaders of our church about these topics? If you don't, you don't have accountability and you almost certainly have spiritual abuse. So if there is a culture that doesn't permit conversation, discussion, and questions about behaviors that are happening in a systematic pattern that's coer- that are coercive or controlling, then you already have a lack of accountability and um, a lack of freedom and you have spiritual abuse. Okay. So I would say we, I would, I would get with leaders, elders, people of wisdom and discernment and spiritual character and talk together about what can be done to bring a different culture into play and talk to these people who can be trusted, who won't go yakking to everybody and won't immediately go to Twitter about it um, and, and start asking important questions so that um, we can we can start working toward being able to talk to the pastor about these systematic patterns of coercion and control. Um, I think it's very difficult. My experience is that in most cases, when people are wondering, how do we make this pastor accountable? You've got a problem. Hmm. The, the culture is already there that is going to prevent being able to talk to the pastor and the pastor is probably already being abusive. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That's what, I, you know, I, I don't know. That's what it looks like to me. Yeah. And then a lot of times anyone you're going to try to have that conversation with is going to already be intent on protecting the organization. Yeah. Um, it, it becomes very hard to have an honest conversation. Yeah. Well, the the story that, of course, that uh, that we heard this about. Well, we heard this story about uh, both Harvest Bible Chapel and about Willow Creek, that it was very difficult to confront Bill Hybels with his behaviors. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not talking about sexual behaviors, although those were involved. Um but power behaviors. And James, James McDonald was the same way. 
And that's the stories that we've been told. And I think uh, that what we see here is a pattern of narcissistic type males. Um, And we see these in the business world. We see these in, I mean, the number of stories that have come to Laura and me about different Christian organizations, schools. I mean, it's, I got, I got a crazy letter yesterday. Um, is that, is that these, these leaders are very difficult to get to in a way that rocks their world sufficiently to get them to listen and change their behaviors. This is, this is the pattern of, of the leader that is unaccountable. And when we're talking about accountability, we're probably already in, in over our heads. Yeah. Yeah. It's so hard. Um, We had a couple of questions, Laura, about the kinds of people who end up in church leadership or who become pastors or leaders of organizations, particularly on the larger scale. Um, So here's one of them. How do bad church organization schemes make abuse like this more likely? Does the allure of leadership attract the wrong people to it? So is Mm -hmm. this a problem of large organizations Mm -hmm. um, that seem to attract people who want to have a lot of power or control over large scale things? You know, I really wrestled with this one. I still do Um, in the aftermath of Willow Creek and the, the, the fallout there. um, Certainly through our research, I think we would say that it takes a person of extraordinary character to lead a mega church and not fall temptation to the celebrity and the power, right? Um, It doesn't mean that everyone does. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen in small churches too. But regarding the organization itself, this one, I continue to wrestle with, with Willow Creek, because I think specifically of the elders that Bill Hybels put in place. And I know I knew some of them and I knew them to be good people of integrity and character. And yet I read in the Willow Creek governance review when it came out, the elders in their exit interviews said that they oftentimes they felt like they were sitting in a room with a celebrity when they were with Bill Hybels. And if they would voice a concern or a dissenting voice, he would get harsher with them and they'd all quickly fall in line. So the part that I wrestled with was, did the, did the power change them or were they the type of person that was drawn to it and drawn to the inner circle? I don't know. I don't know that I have an answer. I just know that it's, it's hard to see. And um, we saw it so clearly with the Willow Creek story. You know, um, this, this is an issue of power, authority, and um, decentralization of power. I was talking with a pastor yesterday who said when they distribute their org charts in their church, that Jesus is always at the top to tell people that Jesus is at the top and not anyone else. Mm, and I like that. 
I really like that. I, yeah. I like it too. And I heard someone else say that doesn't work. <laughs> they were in church with them. And they were, okay. All right. So, but um, it's a, it's a wonderful reminder. Uh, they also don't, um, they do really, they work really hard not to let anybody be called pastor or father or priest because they want to make sure that everybody's gifts are recognized for what they contribute to the church. Because when, it is true that generally, if someone is the pastor, when people have a question, they go to the pastor. They don't think in, in any other category. They go to the, the person who's supposed to be doing all this stuff. And that's not the way the church is supposed to operate. But um, I believe that, and I, I agree with what Laura Berenger said. I, I, I would say that um, mega churches have a habit of attracting mega egos. Um, but that does not mean that the pastor of a mega church has a mega, a mega ego. It's just not a one to one thing. I think leadership positions where there is authority and power attract people who like power and authority. I think that's just the way it works. Yeah. And so you're going to have some people who are good and some people, some people who are tove. All right. I talked to a policeman one time who knew who had been a policeman for quite a while. And I said to him, you know, I have met over the years, a few policemen that I detected were just really into it for the power, for the authority, for the might. I mean, the ultimate weapon is in their holster. They can kill someone. I said, what percent of policemen are like that? He said, about 33%. That was a fascinating question to me. I mean, yeah. and we had a really good conversation over dinner about this. I, I don't know the percent of pastors that have authority and power problems. But I know that there are some who do. And I know a lot of pastors who don't have this problem. And you don't know them because they're not famous. But they are really tove pastors. So I, I, I'm very careful to say that I, I don't believe that mega churches are always bad. There's some great mega churches, you know, the book of Acts bragged about the number of people who became believers in the book or early. You know, we're already counting, counting butts in seats. Um, the um, so I, I think I think what Laura said is right. But I do believe that positions of power and authority make it more likely that people will abuse power and authority than the dispersal of authority. I like, I like us to shift authority. I think it's, it's really wise. Yeah. I've, uh, I, you know, uh, both of you, Laura's know that one of the, the most magical glorified moments on a Sunday morning is a sermon. All right. And, Sermon preaching can be a very intoxicating experience 
where people gain notoriety, power, glory, authority, and it can become self-intoxicating. This is why I really believe that pastors and churches need to spread the glory and not let any, you know, if you say, I'm going to that church because that's where that person preaches and you find out they preach 50 times a year, I think we got a problem. Now, some churches have that because that's the only thing the pastor is expected to do or they don't have any money to pay anybody else. Okay, I get that. That's not what I'm talking about. But I do believe we need to disperse the authority. Now, like our church, our pastor spreads the pulpit. And there are, in a, in a given year, I bet, I don't know, Laura Berenger, but maybe 10 people a year speak from our pulpit. I will also say something that really struck me about the Anglican tradition is that the service is not about the person who is speaking. Yeah. In yeah. fact, that's a small part of the service. It all leads up to communion every week. Hmm. And um, I think that makes a big difference. It really struck me because at Willow Creek, it's all about who's going to be speaking and what they're going to talk about and the music and the drama and all the special effects all surround what the person is, who the person is and what they're going to say. And it was like a light flip, a light switch flip for me when we started attending an Anglican church. And it's just, it's not about that at all. It's not about the person that's speaking. And I think, I think that makes a big difference. Yeah. Sometimes people come to our church who've been to a church that has like a 50 minute sermon. They'll go, that's all the longer it lasts. <laughs> sure, yeah. Because the focus is not on the sermon. So the glory of preaching is nowhere near uh, what it would be in, in other churches. But I really think that we we need to keep this churches, elders, let's say whoever is your leadership board needs to be aware of the intoxicating power or let's just say the intoxication of glory that it it makes people love it. And when you start loving the glory, we got problems. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's also an opportunity to raise up other leaders, yeah, yeah. And to to grow people into leadership and give them opportunities. And I I think too when you're talking about the Anglican service, um, I'm I'm assuming you all have a lot more scripture in your services mm-hmm. than some of these services that have um, 50 minute sermons. <laughs> just a guess. Um, so just we have, a guess. That's just a right. guess. Just throwing that out there. And hit the bully, as they say in dark. <laughs> um, Laura, one more question. Um, how should we handle abuse from people who are well-meaning, but clearly are not meant to be in positions of leadership? As in, it's clear that this is not where the Lord wants them, but because of a vacuum, they took over and the congregation suffers as a result. I This one feels personal to me because I believe that this happened to me where I'm not sure that the circumstances are exactly the same as the question, as the reader's asking, but I feel like I was, I don't want to, I don't even know if I use the word abused, but it came pretty close to that by a leader at Willow Creek. 
And I believe this person thought they were well-meaning, but it turned out that they really just wanted to silence me. They wanted me to be quiet. They wanted me to fall in line. They wanted me to apologize and take back what I had said about Willow Creek. So this is a really hard one. And how should you, how should you handle abuse? Um, It's hard. It's hard to wade through. It's hard to realize that it's happening. It takes days, I think, of feeling a bit disoriented and to make sense of Um, the experience and what happened to you. Oftentimes, too, I think the congregation doesn't even really know the reader asked the congregations are suffering. Sometimes I don't even think the congregation is aware that it's happening, which further compounds the problem. You know, if we look at spiritual abuse here as systematic pattern of coercive and controlling behavior in a religious context, a person who is not gifted to be doing what they're doing is a systematic lack of discernment by, let's say, the church or the leaders in the church who appointed the person who gave the person responsibility. So to me, this one is a little bit, it can be spiritually abusive, but it's it's abusive because the person is doing what they're not gifted to do. And they are, uh, it's almost not systematic. It's just, it's, let's hope of a short duration of someone doing something they shouldn't be. You know, mm. if if I suddenly got appointed to be the CEO, no, what's it called? What's the financial? CFO. CFO. <laughs> of, of Northern Seminary, we would be in trouble. Now, I would, I would not be, do in a sense, I would not be abusive. Uh, I would just be clueless. <laughs> but clueless people can do abusive things, but it's not intentional. So part of the systematic pattern of coercive and controlling behavior is there's an intentionality about it that is not characteristic of clueless people who just are doing what they aren't gifted to do. You know, if you put, if you put, um, if you put David Fitch, my colleague in theology, in a course on Greek, we're going to have problems. (laughs) He's just not going to know what to talk about. And uh, the students are going to ask questions. And go, why are you asking that question? So, <laughs> so someone who is clueless and who is out of their gift range, out of their skill set, is going to do wrong things. But I would be, I would be hesitant to call it spiritual abuse unless they're overpowering people because they now suddenly discover they have power. Uh, or they might, they might be skilled, but they're abusing the power that yeah. comes with position. Yeah, then, then it's a different thing altogether. Yeah. But it's when it's in people who are not meant to be in positions of leadership who are doing things that they're not gifted to do, uh, we got problems. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, a couple more questions in this category, and then I think we need to call it because we're running a little long. Um, 
So is it only male pastors who abuse? Is there a difference between abuse by men versus abuse by women? All right, I, I'll start with this. Um, the, of course, the tradition of church leadership is males. The tradition of the business world is males. So males in most cultures have risen to positions of authority and power. So in a, in a sense, there's a an androcentrism uh, to how we perceive authority and power. It is, uh, and so I would say the characteristic of abuse, spiritual abuse in churches is male-shaped, man-centered. It is not the case that only males abuse. Um, I think that we know stories of women who are pastors who've used their authority uh, to be abusive. Um, I've been in situations where women clearly operated in a tove way and the males in uh, less than tove ways. I've been in situations where I think females, women who are in leaders are not operating in a tove way and, and are abusing their authority and power. I've seen it and uh, it happens. So, um, I don't think there's anything gender-specific about abuse, but because it's the church, people in positions of authority are far more likely to be males, so there's far more male abuse in churches than women abuse. What, do you, right. think? what do you think, Laura Terrell? What do you think? <laughs> I think that's true. I think just by the sheer numbers, um, I think I think women can be really harsh when they want to be. So I I don't doubt that there are women who have abused their authority. Um, I think for most people, when they've experienced spiritual abuse in the context of a church, it's usually done by a male, just because by nature of the numbers, there's far more of them. Yeah. The other side of it is that males are, let's just put it this way, in an embodied world, they're bigger, they're stronger, they're louder in that sense. And mm -hmm. they, have, uh, they can exercise physical force in a way that can be intimidating. You know, um, some women are pretty small mm -hmm. and some men are pretty big. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I think of, of some women I know who are frail. It's, I think they've got to be intimidated to be in the presence of some of these men who are powerful and loud, and they just kind of throw their weight around in a room, it metaphorically. Uh, and the physical size can exude power, and, mm -hmm. and it can uh, create fear. So, yeah. And I think in most church environments, most of the population is used to giving deference to the male leader. So yeah. I think I think that's a factor as well. You know, at, uh, at Willow Creek, when the announcements were made, the first announcements about Bill Hybels, and they had that first family gathering, um, Heather Larson 
said some pretty strong words about women that were abusive because they were wrong. And she had to know they were wrong. So, um, you know, that's a that's a pretty big platform. And this this word rocketed through the world. Um, and so there was, you know, um, you're a position in a power like Heather was uh, and you do what you do. That's spiritually abusive. And, you know, she wasn't the only one, but. That's a woman doing it as well. All right. Last question. Why do so many pastors adopt the pastoral philosophy of Paul's strong super apostle opponents instead of Paul's way of weakness, which is one of the themes in the Corinthian correspondence? This is a very intellectual question. You guys want me to take this one? (laughs) (laughs) I'll pass that on. (laughs) You know, the Apostle Paul clearly knows the Corinthian world, the Roman, uh, Romanitas is what it's sometimes called. And uh, the Europeans will have a little bit softer pronunciation. I probably gave a Spanish pronunciation there. Um, That in that world, boastfulness, manhood, uh, strength, oratory, a person proved themselves through military conquests. And they expected their leaders to be powerful, strong people. And they found in Paul someone who didn't have the oratorical skills that they had become accustomed to. Because after all, Corinth was one of those cities in the empire that wanted to be like Rome as much as possible. So here they have these wannabe Romans who have been listening to great philosophers and speakers. It doesn't take that long to walk from Corinth to Athens, uh, they can get there and hear some of the greatest orators of the world. And there's a whole history of great orators in Greece. And along comes this Jewish apostle. And if we believe the early church's, one early church description, he probably uh, wasn't all that good looking either. And he had a unibrow according to the description. (laughs) And, uh, and he, you know, he probably had some scars on his face because he'd been beaten up so many times and he was not a, a terribly intimidating guy. And, and Paul is the first one to admit that he didn't have rhetorical skills. And so they badmouthed him. Well, Paul knew that he knew, knew how to do some pretty good things with oratory. If you read the letter uh, to Philemon, he puts that guy in a corner and then backs off, and then in a cor- it's pretty clever. And Corinth and the letters to the Corinthians have some pretty powerful rhetoric. Romans is pretty rhetorically powerful. So Paul knew when to do it, but Paul clearly makes the statement that um, when I'm with you, I refuse to use the great oratorical skills because that's what you think is impressive. And I want you to know that what's impressive 
is the cross of Christ and his resurrection, not my oratorical skills. Paul did not want people to go away amazed at his skill, but adoring of the message that he preached. He wanted people to fall in love with Jesus and to bow down to the Lordship of Christ and not to fawn at his feet as a great orator. Hmm. Paul practiced humility. He intentionally tried, in a sense, to make sure his skills did not gain the glory, but that the cross would get the glory. We can learn from this. You know, we can learn that we don't have we don't have to put on a performance that we want people to focus on Jesus and to be filled with his glory. So I I would say that um, in seminaries, we we try to get people to be as good at what they do as possible. In sermon classes, we want students to learn how to, to write a good introduction, to make smooth transitions, to use apt illustrations, to quote the right people at the right time, to use the right words at the right time, and to make compelling messages. And sometimes our seminary students who become preachers um, get pretty skilled at the performative level, but uh, we don't always know if it's producing the right result. And so Paul wanted the result to be Christ crucified and uh, not Paul, the great orator. We have too many who are driven by performance and glory and not enough by the glory of Christ. Hmm. Hmm. That's really good. That's what Laura, my daughter, Berenger, would have said too. Right, Laura? That's that's exactly what I was going to comment. (laughs) (laughs) I do think it's interesting, you know, Paul gave us Philippians too, that, you know, the hymn of Christ, the humility of Christ. Um, and I, I think that is something that comes through loud and clear is that we follow Christ crucified. Um, and, and we need to be careful that we're not followers of particular pastors, yeah. um, that we're followers of Christ. So I think that's a really important point. Well, I want to thank you both. This has been a marathon session and we have barely scratched the surface of these questions. So we'll have to come back another time and tackle another group of them. But I want to thank you both for being willing to get questions and to wrestle with them and give us your best responses about spiritual abuse. I think this has been helpful. Um, And we will try to get to more of these in the future. And we look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now.